student of human history, or you've traveled much to other countries, um, that information will help you appreciate what you have here. You study human history, and you know what most governments are like that have ever existed. Or you go to another country, and you look and see what other governments are like. Um, you will appreciate what you have here tremendously. Even though our media and the people who handle information about our government teach you to have what I'm going to call today an ungodly attitude towards our government. Uh, you will appreciate it if you go somewhere else. It was interesting to hear Dean tell me the story about what kind of care is being received by Jair and what was available to Teo and Letty. Um, you know, when, when you nationalize medicine, you know, that sounds like somebody who's going to solve everybody's problem. But by the time, probably this would probably not be an exaggeration, by the time the nationalized Mexican medicine service would have gotten around to caring for Jair, he'd have been dead. So be careful when you fall in love with the idea that everybody's going to be covered by the government for health care. Uh, that sounds like a concept that works, but when you travel to other countries where they're actually are trying to do that, you find out the health care there that's available is greatly reduced. It's not what you have here, just on demand now. Uh, it's very different. But thrust in front of us is a political process that we are blessed to be a part of. And Tuesday, we have the opportunity to be a part of electing leaders. That's, that's not something that, as a matter of fact, it's foreign to the Bible. I don't know if there's any time frame uh, in the scriptures where there are elections that the people get a chance to participate in. And yet we live in a time frame where we can do that. And I think we have a responsibility to do that. And I think we have a responsibility to engage the political process in a particular fashion. And so this morning, if you didn't get an outline, you can pick one up on your way out. The title this morning is called Being Biblically Politically Correct. Being Biblically Politically Correct. God has an opinion about how we ought to be involved in the political process. And we're going to look at some scripture. But I want to set us up a little bit by appreciating kind of where we are in this arena of politics and Christianity. I wrote a thought there to start your outline. It says, while laws and governments don't save anyone, they do matter. We're not going to elect somebody who's going to be the answer to, for bringing the gospel. That's the church's responsibility. And so we never get to give that to anyone else. That always remains ours. We can never establish a government that will do that for us. But while the government doesn't save anyone, laws that the government creates matter. And therefore, our involvement with them matters. And let me give you some examples of this. This is an article, a uh, statement by five Dutch social science professors on the deterioration of marriage in the Netherlands. And these are not Christians, as far as I know. They are a professor in contract law, a professor in family law, a professor in philosophy, a lecturer in social theory, and a lecturer in social and political science from five different universities in the, in the Netherlands. <clears throat> they say this. This is a statement they made for the rest of the world to benefit from. At a time when parliaments around the world 
are debating the issue of same-sex marriage. As Dutch scholars, we would like to draw attention to the state of marriage in the Netherlands. The undersigned represent various academic disciplines in which marriage is an object of study. Through this letter, we would like to express our concerns over recent trends in marriage and family life in our country. Until the late 1980s, marriage was a flourishing institution in the Netherlands. The number of marriages was high, the number of divorces was relatively low compared to other Western countries, and the number of illegitimate births also was low. It seems, however, that legal and social experiments in the 1990s have had an adverse effect on the reputation of man's most important institution. Now, let me give you a quote from another study that was done. It's quoted by Al Mohler in his column. His column is entitled, The End of Marriage in Scandinavia, Is America Next? Are we witnessing the end of marriage? In a fascinating study, researcher Stanley Kurtz of the Hoover Institution indicates that marriage is already dying in Scandinavia. And his evidence demands attention. In Sweden and Norway, listen, a majority of children are now born out of wedlock. A full 60% of firstborn children in Denmark have unmarried parents. The background to Kurtz's research is the claim made by advocates of same-sex marriage that the legitimization of homosexual relationships poses no threat to the institution of marriage. Nonsense, responds Kurtz. Same-sex marriage has locked in and reinforced an existing Scandinavian trend toward the separation of marriage and parenthood. The Nordic family pattern, including gay marriage, is spreading across Europe. And by looking closely at it, we can answer the key empirical question underlying the gay mandate debate or gay, gay marriage debate. Will same-sex marriage undermine the institution of marriage? Kurtz is ready with an answer to his own question. It already has. And he goes on and says, Scandinavian gay marriage has driven home the message that marriage itself is outdated and that virtually any family form, including out-of-wedlock parenthood, is acceptable. Just how bad is the situation in Scandinavia? A recent study, these are not Christian studies, a recent study by Harvard University Press indicates that some young married couples in Scandinavian countries are reluctant even to admit that they are married since the cultural expectation is cohabitation. Marriage has become something of an embarrassment for the minority of young couples who have formalized their relationship through either a secular contract or a sacred covenant. That represents a moral transformation of awesome importance for it represents the reversal of millennia of moral wisdom. And he goes through and traces out thoughts of how things have changed through the years, starting in the 60s when we had radical departure from moral thinking that was in our country and, and in Scandinavian countries as well, and changes of laws that accommodated these new views. Because that's what happens when views change, laws follow these changing views. That's why there is this debate today. Shall we form laws that either allow or prohibit same-sex marriages. Because there's a change in view, it's pushing its way into the law process. Well, um, they've gone through the same type of changes as we've gone through, which has resulted in, in a 
falling apart of families, the falling apart of the institution of marriage. And he highlights, does this sound familiar? Americans have lived through this transformation, Kurtz acknowledges. The Swedes have finally drawn the final conclusion. If we've come so far without marriage, why marry at all? Our love is what matters, not a piece of paper. Why should children change that? Someone had better answer that question. And he goes through and just begins to define what we possibly open up when we touch the institution of marriage and begin to change the laws that surround it and how it affects the world that we live in. He says, of course, their push for homosexual marriage opens the floodgates for other experiments in human sexuality and other demands for normalization. Or, as Kurtz warns, unless something unexpected changes the picture, the Nordic present is America's future. The same process of secularization is evident in America, though delayed by as much as a decade from Scandinavia. Americans take it for granted that despite its recent troubles, marriage will always exist. And nobody ever begins to think that we're going to do away with marriage with some of these decisions we're about to make as a country. This is a mistake, Kurtz asserts. The forces that led to the dissolution of marriage in Scandinavia are active in all Western cultures. See, laws matter. And, and let me tell you how this begins to spread out in a, a Charisma magazine article that was focused on some of the elements that were taking place in the Netherlands. Laws have been created to protect the views of legitimate lifestyles that are associated with homosexuality. Well, when the laws begin to protect that, certain things that interfere with those laws begin to be illegal. You know what one of those things was? And still is? That there are hate speech laws that have been established to where you cannot preach against homosexuality in Sweden. In June, a Swedish Pentecostal pastor was sentenced to a month in prison for preaching against homosexuality. Christians in the nation say this is part of a more alarming trend towards stifling religious freedom in Europe. Why is that so significant? Because in a moment when I highlight some of what's happening in our own country, you're going to see that is exactly what's happening here. See, we are so used to the idea that we live in a country that was formed on Christian principles that as though that's always going to continue. Can, can you guys remember what formed Europe? Europe was formed out of many of the Christian principles that were transferred over to us. And look where Europe is today. Look at the laws that they're experiencing today. There's a deliberate political move in all of Europe toward restricting the freedom of religion, with Sweden serving as a sort of European pilot project. Unless we now claim the freedom to preach the gospel in all of its facets and consequences, we soon will not be allowed to preach it at all. And that's what they're saying over in Sweden today. Laws, laws mean something for the future of people. And the influence that is had through the formation of those laws and those who lead the formation, you, you can see it in the polarizing effect when you study a person like an Adolf Hitler who affected government. This man had to get into a place where he could formalize his ideas into laws and practices that created an incredible century on this planet out of one man influencing the laws of his country. On the other end of that, you have men like William Wilberforce, who fought and resisted a Christian who, based on biblical principles, fought and resisted slavery and shaped the laws of England and also of the United States. 
by one man saying this is what Scripture teaches and insisting upon it. And it changed the course of history for people who would have been, perhaps today, still walking in bondage and slavery. But yet laws changed as a result of somebody's influence. And when we are in a political process that allows us to play a part in shaping those laws. And people are going to be affected by that. Now, this, this message began to percolate in me uh, back in either late August or early September when I was just following the local news. And at that time, there was a religious convention in town. It was a full gospel Baptist convention, I believe, that was meeting here. And there was a great deal of hubbub about John Kerry had been invited. He was going to speak there. Uh, George Bush either had not been invited or had been invited, and he turned it down. There was a little lack of clarity on how that actually came out. Um, but there were, there were attitudes being portrayed in this thing that was associated with Christianity that stirred something in me. It bothered me a great deal. Because what I was watching was more political than it was biblical. It was people who had been informed by the political process while being ignorant of the Bible. That's why this morning I want to say there's a way for Christians to be biblically, politically correct. We don't just want to be politically correct. We want to be biblically, politically correct. Let me point out some thoughts here that were highlighted by Charisma magazine. In the last election, more than 90% of African American Christians supported Al Gore, while 80% of white Christians voted for Bush, according to a University of Akron poll. Now, can I, I say something? Because this is a predominantly white church. And you need to be careful that you just don't default into being a conservative who finds himself trying to defend what the National Rifle Association's about and, and what, you know, this, this group's about. And, you know, we're just anything conservative. That's me. Anything conservative. That's, that's who I am. I, I'm a conservative. Well, you know, the only label I want to be trying to uphold is I'm a Christian. That's the party that I'm a part of. I'm not black or white. I'm not, uh, well, you know, my family was Democrats. So I'm Democrat. You know, at, at some point here, my value system and my political party platform needs to be built on this right here. And in reality, you're going to find some things that you agree with in one party and some things you agree with in the other one. If you think that, well, you know, no, no, the ones who are conservative, they've got all the biblical values. I, I would disagree. Now, I'm restrained by law from endorsing a candidate from the pulpit, so... So today, whatever you hear me say, it's not an endorsement of a candidate, unless the Holy Spirit convinces you that I actually led you to vote a certain way. <laughs> uh, does that keep me safe, Bill? <laughs> I have to consult my attorney along the way here. Uh, here, here would be something that formed for me, and, and I'll borrow Charisma Magazine's analysis here from their recent publication. That was my concern back in August and September. They said, if conservatives think that opposition to gay marriage in the black church will translate into black votes for Bush, they will have to think again. Reed, this is a man who is a pastor of Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Baltimore. Reed is, is a registered Democrat and is still undecided. 
Both candidates have serious weaknesses around issues that are very important to me. Budget deficits, the war in Iraq, and the alleged oil involvement of Vice President Cheney. For other African Americans, concern about gay marriage takes a back seat to such issues as economic opportunity, quality education, and health care access. And I ask the question in your outline, of all the issues being debated, which ones make the top of the list for Christians? See, this is, this is what jumped out at me in listening to what was being discussed by a Christian convention. What they were discussing and debating and trying to figure out whose leadership they wanted to follow was all of the issues that the media had told them was important. The war in Iraq. It's the most critical thing on the ballot for folk, most folks. Can I, can I humbly disagree? The war in Iraq is not the most critical ballot item that we're facing in this election. Balancing the budget, education, access to health care. You know, Christians get divided and, you know, Christians would do well to think about why they love the views that they love. Taxation. Big debates over how taxation should be done. Big government, little government. Big debates over which one of those is the best thing to do. Do you, do you reduce taxation and try and enlarge business so that business can generate jobs and therefore that helps the, the little guy? Or do you create government programs that take money and give it directly to the little guy? Well, you know, that's, that's open for debate. You know, let's, and again, these are my opinions in some of these things. But I don't know that too many Christians ought to be dying on that hill. Now, I have an opinion about which one of those might work best. But, you know, the, the Bible is not an economics book. And if that was so critical, we'd have economic theory all throughout the Bible on how to do taxation as a government. That's not that clear. And so if somebody's heart of compassion is toward poor people, and they want to help them. And they think the best way to help them is to establish government programs that will help them. And they're a Christian whose heart is passionate about caring for poor people. Now, whether I agree or disagree with them, their heart could be in the right place to pursue it that way. And I might disagree and say, you know what? It's better to help businesses generate jobs that people could get good paying jobs from those. Maybe that's my opinion. But that's not the most critical issue that's on the ballot. How to reform our education system. Hey, that's important. It's not the most critical issue on the ballot. In light of eternity, get a global view of man's existence and look in light of eternity and tell me that tweaking the education system is the most critical thing that man is facing in this country. Travel a few hours. Go south of the border and see what education looks like there. And realize how well we have it here even with all the deficiencies that are here. So this morning, I want to draw attention to what I think are the three most critical issues. And these are more philosophically based that touch the issues that are in a campaign than the specific ones. Those three would be this. One, the defining of human life. I think is the most critical issue that can be voted on. 
Second, the defining of the family unit. And third, the interpretation and application of laws. So let me walk through these three just for a moment. The defining of human life. Listen, if you get this definition wrong, you get everything wrong. If you don't start in the right place of giving godly defined dignity to human life, you can't help but trip over that when you come to deal with human beings. You started in the wrong place, you're going to end up in the wrong place at some point. Now, let me use some examples because they have some similarities here, even though they, they may rankle us a little bit. Adolf Hitler had a problem defining human life. When a man develops a view of some superior Aryan race, and that's what drove him to create laws that persecuted certain segments of society, to hold them down and to dominate others, to, to let a particular segment of humanity benefit at the expense of another segment of humanity, that's because this man did not define human life correctly. And so it became disposable as long as it furthered his own agenda. And when you put it on the face of Adolf Hitler, doesn't that sound horrible? But yet we're doing that today in this country. Now, I know we live in a country that has fostered the ability for all of us to participate in activities of sin that are legal. And therefore, in this room, more than likely, some of us here have made choices that have been legal that as I walk through this, you're going to find out, if you don't already know, that they are biblically wrong. And you know, again, this morning, I can't cover everything this morning, so I'm going to ask for a little latitude from you. If you find yourself on the convicted end, that you will also absorb everything you've ever heard us teach you about the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. But what is happening today in our country with laws about abortion is exactly the same problem of defining human life. And when you call it Adolf Hitler, everybody reacts. But when you, when you put it on the basis of the choice of a mother and you make laws that seek to protect that person's choice, if you study the statistics on this, it's a little bit alarming and disturbing. The argument here concerning laws about abortion is not about rape and incest or the life of the mother. That is less than 2% of all abortions. 98% of all abortions fall outside of those few restrictions. And in surveys and studies that have been done, 95% phrased their response basically as an issue of inconvenience. This life being formed in me is going to be inconvenient. That's, that's a problem with the definition for human life. And that's not limited just to the abortion debate, because right now that is what's spilling over into the stem cell research debate as well. It is, it is promoting the benefit to one segment of humanity at the expense of another. And when you've opened your mind to laws that make it okay to do that in the abortion category, then why isn't it okay to do that with human embryos? Well, 
laws open the thought process to that it's okay. The government that God has given to establish a, a declaration of right and wrong has said that's right. And so human hearts now begin to move in that direction of being okay with embryonic stem cell research that takes the life of a human embryo. Now, now what's, and I'm not going to get into all these politics on this, but what's a little bit disturbing is if you do a little bit of research on stem cell research, you find out that there are six ways available to obtain stem cells in order to do research on them. Only two of them involve fetal tissue and embryos. There's four other ways. Did, did anybody here know that? Raise your hand if you know that. So you're not going to hear that in the news. It's as though we can't do stem cell research unless we can do it on embryos. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. As a matter of fact, in many of the studies I saw, they've gotten better results by studying adult stem cells. But, but they see, there's a spiritual undercurrent here. And it has to do with how we define life. Now, now listen, this undercurrent is affecting the, the fact that we see human beings as disposable if they will benefit others in the process. Now, as extreme as that is, let me tell you something. That, that idea is all over parenting today. It is affecting the way we value parenting, the way in which we value the raising of children, because children have become disposable commodities. Listen to this thought. Al Mohler talks about reaping what we sow. He says, The devastating loss of moral absolutes is nowhere better seen than in America's rejection of the sanctity of human life. No barometer could provide a clear reading of moral condition. In the past 31 years, over 40 million unborn babies have been sacrificed on the altar of human convenience. Much talk about abortion has been centered on the so-called hard cases which supposedly stand behind liberalized abortion laws. But the truth remains that the vast majority of abortions are performed for nothing more pressing than convenience. The Alan Glutmacher Institute, a research agency of Planned Parenthood, has reported that 75% of persons seeking abortion stated that having the child would interfere with their lives. Other research indicates that over 95% of all abortions are performed just because the parents do not want to be inconvenienced by the child. America now reaps what decades of moral decay have sown. See, these laws have affected our views of life. Children are now seen as burdens to be avoided. And you stop and think about your own views of your involvement with your own children. And we, we live in a world where we're eager to give our kids away to somebody else to take care of them. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from years of decay through laws that we've initiated that have stamped okay on these kind of activities. See, laws matter. Second, the defining of the family unit. What happens when you redefine the most basic component and transfer of values in society? What happens when you redefine that thing? You're going to touch every fiber of every person's life in this country. This is, this is where ignorance... I'm sorry, ignorance is occurring. This is where ignorance is occurring in the pulpit. Where people can stand and say, you know what my issues are? My issues are budget deficits. My issues are whether or not Dick Cheney was involved in the, in the oil scandal in Iraq. Those are my issues. 
I'm sorry, you're an ignorant person leading the body of Christ. You'd be better off being quiet than making those the issues for people to be concerned about. When you live in a society that's about to redefine the family, this is what God used as the very, it's the cell out of which humanity develops. You want to try and figure out why you need all these programs in society? Why we're trying to figure out how to fund this and fund that and take care of this need and answer that problem and answer poverty? It's because the family's been falling apart for years. And now somebody wants to come along and pull the final pin out of it. Listen, listen, these are the issues. This, this debate, uh, Glenn Stanton put together some thoughts for focus on the family. It's a Q&A type thing about the whole debate on homosexual marriage. He poses this question. But how does someone's homosexual marriage threaten everyone else's families? Answer. Gay activists are not asking for just one homosexual marriage, even though they often personalize it by saying, don't you interfere with my family and I won't interfere with yours. What the activists, wants, activists want is a new national policy saying that no longer is a mom and a dad any better than two moms or two dads. That policy would turn some very important principles upside down. First, marriage would become merely an emotional relationship that is flexible enough to include any grouping of loving adults. If it is fair for two men or two women to marry, why not three or five or 17? The terms husband and wife would become merely words with no meaning. Parenthood would, ex would consist of any number of emotionally attached people who care for kids. Mother and father would become only words. Marriage is not just a private affair. Every marriage is a public virtue in that it, it, in that it responsibly regulates human sexuality, brings the two parts of humanity together in a cooperative and mutually beneficial relationship, and it delivers mothers and fathers to children. Society benefits from the well-being of marriage. Nearly every dollar spent by our government in social welfare is in reaction to a marriage breaking down or failing to form. Good things happen when we honor what marriage is. Bad things happen when we try to change it. Ultimately and inevitably, the future and the health of humanity rests upon the health and future of marriage. For someone to say that issue is taking the back seat to some other issue, as we mentioned in that quote, is absolutely irresponsible. I fear for that man standing before God who has spoken more clearly on other things than to have let those issues become your issues. It's a people who are too media-defined. This is not the gospel according to Tom Brokaw. You don't have these guys speaking for the Bible. And you and I need to be very careful that we know what the Bible says on these issues. We know that the, what, what drum is the Bible beating on when it speaks into these issues that are supposed to form our views on how we vote. Third issue that I would say is critical is the interpretation and application of laws. There is a current trend in our country to remove God from defining right and wrong. There is this incredible push towards relativism. 
so that right and wrong um, is not being defined by what God has decreed as right and wrong, but it's being drafted out of how people feel about what's right and wrong. See, this is a recipe for what the Bible calls every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, you and I stand with a revelation from God. God brings judgment upon that day. We know biblically that if you want to invite judgment from God, let every man do what is right in his own eyes. And you will bring the judgment of God down upon you. So you and I are going to vote. In some ways, we're going to either vote for judgment or we're going to vote to prolong God's grace toward a nation in our decision that we're about to make. There is a criticalness of, in this country, we're blessed to have a system that was created that was very wise to legislate and create laws, but then those laws are going to be interpreted for their application. And that's the judiciary element of our legal system. And that's where judges sit, Supreme Court judges sit, in the role of interpreting how these laws are to be applied. And we're seeing uh, judges who have agendas all over this country who are beginning to interpret laws for the favor of something that is ungodly. And this is a critical issue. Quote John Ankerberg. <clears throat> he says, By who you choose to be president, you are also picking the next three or four Supreme Court justices. We have shown you how the nine justices on the Supreme Court made decisions such as banning prayer in schools, legalizing abortion, and even recently overturning a Texas law that criminalized sodomy. During the next four years, experts say the new president will appoint at least three, possibly four, new judges to the Supreme Court. What other freedoms will Americans lose if three or four more liberal judges are appointed? Do we want more decisions such as the ones we've seen? Christians in America have a chance to decide a certain extent, to a certain extent, how the country and the Supreme Court will go. Listen, we live in a country <clears throat> that has somehow found itself trying to extract God from the right and wrong process. Let's remove God from trying to define what's right and what's wrong. And let's create a political system that doesn't give account to God for how it forms its ideas. Well, can I tell you that philosophy cannot work correctly? It cannot. Because ultimately, somebody has to have say-so. Somebody's going to have the winning opinion over why that becomes law or why it does not. And I can't help but advance this quote because I think it lacks wisdom it's inconsistent in its own thinking. Uh, Mark Strickert from Christianity Today, in his article called John Kerry's Open Mind, said, Kerry said in a July interview with an Iowa newspaper, I oppose abortion personally. I don't like abortion. Believe life does begin at conception. That comment apparently was the first time Kerry, who has consistent endorsements from leading pro-choice groups, reported a belief that human life begins at the moment of conception, a key pro-life tenet. Kerry continued, I can't take my Catholic belief, my article of faith, and legislate it on a Protestant or a Jew or an atheist. That is philosophically ridiculous. 
what, what is legislation except for the codifying of convictions? That is what legislation is. It's people who believe something enough to promote it into becoming law. That's every bit of legislation is that. To separate your convictions from that process is to what? Is to open yourself to what? To tell you how to steer things. And it's, it's sheer idiocy to live in a country and say, you know what, it's wrong for me to impose restrictions upon your choices. You know, if you stand within the abortion debate, that's going to, you know, it's wrong to tell somebody you can't choose to do that. All right, well, let's, let's, let's have that be our philosophy. Because, see, if that is your basic philosophy, then it's beginning to be spreading in all directions. And so what do you do with all other forms of law that restrict people's choices? Oh, my goodness. We're, we don't want to restrict anybody's choice to end a life, but we will restrict your choice as to whether you can smoke in a restaurant. Whether you can drive at the speed that you'd like to drive at. I mean, this is reality. I mean, aren't there laws all over the place? How many of y'all just volunteer to pay your taxes? There's no law about it. I mean, do you feel like your, your rights are being infringed upon? I mean, I don't have the right to say no. Freedom of choice. I, I'd go to jail for mistreating my dog or my cat. I don't have the freedom to abuse my animals, and sometimes I like that freedom. <laughs> uh, I'm not a cat lover, so my cat lives in my house at its own risk. <laughs> the only thing restraining me sometimes is the law. <laughs> we have laws that protect cats and dogs that don't protect human babies. Because somebody had a conviction to make a lot of noise about animals need to be treated a certain way. And it became a law. And I don't like you, you cat lovers, imposing your laws on me. I think that thing growing out of the back of that cat, it's a handle. Pick that cat up with. cat tries to get away from you, he's got that thing pointed back at you, boom, you got him. And I don't like you restricting my freedom to grab my cat the way I want. But nonetheless, we live in a land with laws. But that was a law that got imposed, didn't it? See, our laws are an imposition, and it's a ridiculous idea that I'm, I'm going to stand as your leader and make laws, but not out of the convictions that are in my heart. Well, then what are you going to make them out of? You're going to make them out of somebody's conviction, pal. At some point, somebody's going to push on you hard enough to where you're going to give in to somebody's conviction and that will become law. And then you will impose it upon everybody else, whether they agree or disagree with it. Somebody's going to sit, guys, at the, at the top of the pyramid here and make decisions that influence all the rest of us. And we need to decide whether we want those convictions to be shaped in a particular fashion or whether we want to pursue God's shaping and influencing the laws in our lives. Let me walk you through some biblical thought here. 1 Timothy chapter 2 to inform us what the Bible supports in our involvement in the political process. 1 Timothy chapter 2.
verse 1. Now, if you guys are, are sensitive here, you're going to get convicted right away of how media-oriented we've become rather than biblical-oriented. Here's where the Bible begins in the political process. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Where does the Bible begin the political process? It begins in prayer. And this is where I think the church has been biblically, politically incorrect. Because we want to begin in debate. We want to begin in the public forum. We want to tune into our favorite show. And we want to get rankled by what we hear. And we want to go to somebody else and voice that. But the Bible begins with a people on their knees, crying out to God, with their hearts able to lift holy hands and make a difference. I, would, I will encourage everybody to think of this message that you ought to be voting on Tuesday. But before you amen that real loud, you ought to be praying long before Tuesday ever came. Because more important then the votes that will happen on Tuesday is the prayers of the saints. Right? God holds the, hands, the hearts of the king in his hands and he channels them like water. I have better access to, to the political process through my God touching the heart of the king than I do through me. But I think I've got better access through me. Right? I've got to vote. Well, and I should exercise it. But I should stand before God's throne of grace and call out for this nation and call out for the leaders and those in government positions because that's where the Bible starts. And it, and it starts and it clarifies what kind of people are supposed to be praying. Verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. It's interesting that there's a little qualifier that's placed on prayer. Prayer that is not polluted. Some of us engage the political process, but live lives that drain all the power out of our prayers. Just active, on the campaign trail, helping things to get forwarded in the, the natural realm, while our lives lack spiritual power. We believe more in the political process in some ways than we do in the power of prayer. And therefore, we don't prepare our lives to pray and call out to God. We're too busy engaging the, the debate realm and elements. We're to support this. Look in verse 2. We're to support a particular type of life, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. See, there, we want to pursue candidates, laws, and leaders that are going to aim us in that direction. Dignified life. Godly. That's ought to be what's shaping us. Listen, you know what the temptation for us is? Which one of those guys is going to be expedient for my interest? Who's going to give me a better tax break? That's why all that stuff gets debated the way it does. If I wave that in front of you and I can grab a hold of your self-interest and where you are, you know, if you're wealthy, then you want the candidate who's going to serve the wealthy people. No, no. 
No. Okay, whether you're poor or whether you're wealthy, because it bites both ends of this, doesn't it? They have folks who are poor who throw out biblical convictions because they think that candidate's going to put money in my pocket. That's why I'm voting for him. He's going to put money in my pocket. He's going to kill babies, too. You still want to vote for him? He's going to create laws that aren't good. They're not godly. They're not dignified. They don't fulfill this mandate. You still want to vote for him just because he serves your particular interest at this particular time in this moment of your life? No, I would hope not. I would hope as believers something else is framing our convictions about who we vote for and what we want in the political process. There is a, a call for Christians. This is where I think voting becomes an obligation and a responsibility. There is a call for Christians to love your neighbor as you love yourself. If I love my neighbor and I truly love people, then I want laws and leadership that reflect biblical wisdom to be active in their lives because ultimately that's the best way to love them is to have godly influence into their world and into their life. And if I have an ability to vote and, and help the process to create laws that are going to benefit my neighbor, then I have a responsibility as a believer to vote. To not vote, I believe you sin against every neighbor that you have a life associated with. If you do not vote on Tuesday, I believe that you fail to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because you know some things. You know that certain laws lack dignity. There is a lack of biblical dignity and godliness in the laws that float around abortion. Certain stem cell research approaches, uh, homosexual rights and uh, same-sex marriages. That, that lacks godliness. It lacks the morality that, that is reflective in the wisdom of God that God gave to humanity. It ends up hurting people. If you've ever walked with somebody who's made decisions that look like it was the right decision in that moment because it was expedient to, to walk with them through the grief and the heartache years later of having made a decision to end another life, you will know you are not serving that person by encouraging them in that direction you would know it would have been better to help them make the hard decision right now and to live in the good of that decision in their life. The government would serve people by helping them to make the right decision right now rather than being expedient and, and creating for them years of regret. That's loving your neighbor. God has an idea about marriage and family and what it's supposed to look like. You don't love your neighbor when that neighbor comes and says, well, I think that's wrong. I think I ought to have the right and the freedom um, to go over here. I, I should have the right and freedom to go abuse drugs, shoot myself in the head, uh, wreck my life. I should have the freedom to do that. Somebody puts a gun to their head. Do you just stand back and you go, oh, you know, you got the freedom to do that. And that's, that's the great thing about living in a free country. Hopefully, yeah, there's a heart in you that wants to interfere in persons bringing harm to themselves. And ultimately, these are laws that are, that are about to seek to be put on our books for our country that are going to harm people. They're not going to serve people. They're going to harm children. They're going to harm generations to come in ways that you and I can't even begin to imagine as many laws that have gone before them have. 
I think we have a responsibility to vote. You look in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 tells us government exists as a boundary for right and wrong. I won't spend much time on this, but but it also touches our attitude in this equation. And I do want to address that for a moment. Verse 1 of Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's a policy issue. You realize that? You ought to be supporting candidates who believe like that. Who believe government exists to punish wrongdoers. See, sometimes we we get wishy-washy on this stuff because we've listened to too many animal rights groups whatever their little cause is. The Bible says, you know, you know the Bible does say that God is an avenger of, of those who do wrong. You do know that. You do know that, that hell is a place where the wrath and fury of God will be poured out for eternity on wrongdoers. Do you know that? God is not slight when it comes to punishing evil. I think the only thing that exceeds God's punishment of evil is the mercy that he pours upon his children. But he is deliberate in both. And you and I ought to seek laws that reflect that in those who support them. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Verse 6. For the same reason you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all who is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now this touches a little bit about our attitude towards government. This is where I think uh, there is a, a severe lack of biblical understanding about how to be biblically, politically correct. Christians are supposed to be in subjection to the government. Our attitude, our hearts are supposed to be in subjection in how we relate to the government. When, when you look here, there's support for paying taxes. That's a supported thing. The Bible actually supports us paying our taxes. If you're here this morning and you don't pay taxes, you're in sin. You are violating the purpose of God. Well, yeah, but... You know what the government's doing with my good hard-earned money? You know what they're doing? They're funding this, and they're funding that, and they're paying for this, and they're funding that thing. I'm not paying for that. Do you have any idea what this government was like when Paul was writing? You'd think that we were being led by a nice kindergarten teacher. Paul's writing about the time that Nero is the emperor of Rome. Nero was nuts. By the time he was 31 years old, he committed suicide at 31 years old. By the time he got to that point, everybody around him that he had any relationship with, he had his mother killed. He had his wife killed. 
his closest confidant who was responsible for helping him become who he was, forced him to commit suicide as well. This guy was nuts. You remember the old story about, you know, Nero fiddled while Rome burned? You know what Nero did after he burned Rome all to pieces? He blamed it on the Christians. And then there began to be a persecution as was never, ever occurred since then or before then against the people of God. And here Paul is saying, be in subjection to that government. This is a guy who didn't have any chance to vote. It's a guy who had a lot of policies he was against. So you may not like what the government does with your taxes, but you have a biblical responsibility. If you're really biblically, politically correct, you paid your taxes. And you do so because whether you understand it or not, God has instituted authority in governments. He has placed it there. He wants it there. And, and you and I can't begin to imagine um, that even, and we're seeing a little bit of this in Iraq and some of the places where you go in and you disrupt a bad government, sometimes what you get is worse than what you had before. Now, hopefully you can establish something that's better than what you had before. But if you remove government, can you imagine what this planet would be like? Every man left to himself, no restraints. If you tasted that for a few days, you'd love the government that we have. You'd gladly pay your taxes. But we won't experience that. We have to take the Bible at its word. I think uh, I will say this. Close with this. And Matt, you can go ahead and come up. Ultimately... Our hope is in the gospel. It's not in the government. Our hope is in the gospel. People's ultimate need is not the right presidential candidate. It is the gospel. People need to be saved. That's the function of the church. But it matters in the natural realm what you and I have access to. And let me encourage us to guard our hearts as we engage this process. Because One of the primary issues that the church is supposed to do in relation to government is to pray for its government and to offer thanksgiving to it. And this is where I think we are, we're missing it a bit because we don't realize when we feed on a steady diet of Rush Limbaugh and Fox News and Bill O'Reilly and everybody else who is educating us about what kind of attitude we're supposed to have towards the government. Now listen, I don't, I don't get those channels. If I did, I would watch them. Because I enjoy debate. I like to watch one guy's reasonings beat up on another guy's reasonings. There's something in me that likes that. So if I had access to more of that stuff, I would be eating it on a daily basis and cheering on the guy who had better intellect than that ding-ding over there did. But what that forms in me along the way is not a biblical response to government. this, This should humble every Christian as we pray for our government. Turn to Titus chapter 3. This is, this is what forms. This is where our theology never departs from our thinking. Our theology about the grace of God should touch every area of our lives. Can you and I 
for a moment, try and figure out why it is that we have the convictions that we have. Why it is that we're able to argue and debate for a particular view. Is it because you and I are morally superior than the people on the other end of the debate? Is it because we're just smarter, they're idiots? Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That would include government officials in particular. Listen, and here's why. Here's a dose of humility. Why? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. Oh, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. You want to know why you and I can see things right and wrong? Because He saved us. Can we all be reminded? We once were everything that we hate on the other side of the political fence. And maybe your views are a little bit different and your terminology is a little bit different. But can you find yourself in this verse? See, because apart from the grace of God, I'm, I'm every bit capable of doing anything Bill Clinton has done or, or anybody else you can think of in the political arena. The only difference for me is the grace of God. If I can know that, it's kind of hard to get this arrogant, down the end of your nose, conservative talk radio sound in the presentation going. When you realize, but for the grace of God, let's be right there. Believe in those things, chasing those ideas, and harming and hating other people. So what I'd like for us to do this morning, I'd like for us to humble ourselves and prepare in just a moment to call out to God for our nation. We've decided to school the word this morning. We're going to stop and give a little break here. Is about the church calling out for our nation. Calling out for this election that's coming up. Calling out because we're passionate for the goodness of God to touch the laws of the land that we live in. We're passionate to resist the evil that is beckoning and standing at the door, awaiting a moment to drag us down a road that's been walked by country after country after country. And you and I have an ability to play a part. And what we do this morning in praying is the most important part. But if you are in this country and you are a believer, you have a responsibility 
promote righteousness and to love your neighbor. And so if, if you are registered to vote, whatever you need to do, you need to vote on Tuesday. And if you're not sure, I don't know how to sort through the issues. I'm not quite sure. Well, come pursue the elders, your covenant group leaders, and sit down with them and say, you know what, I'm, I'm wrestling through. I don't know how to decide on this or decide on that. Can you help me understand biblically how to look at some of these issues so that you can get some leadership in that decision? But if you are registered to vote, you must vote on Tuesday. If you're not registered to vote this morning, I'm serious, you need to repent. Uninvolvement. You cannot support uninvolvement biblically. You have an opportunity to do good. And if I have an opportunity to do good and I turn my back and walk from it, then I have sinned against someone in that process. So if you're not registered to vote, you can't vote this time, but, but be sure you take care of that so that next time you have the opportunity, you can. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, we are always reminded about the cross and the grace that it has extended to us. Lord, you have sorted through the confusion of all the debate taking place around us by giving us your word. But Lord, once we were hostile to this very word, our minds, as your word says, were hostile to you and unable to submit themselves to you until you saved us by your grace. Now, Lord, you've let us see that which is truly important, truly critical. So, Father, would you help us? Help us to serve your purpose in the days ahead of us. Help us to serve your purpose this morning as we pray and call out to you. Lord, lest you visit this land with judgment, for it seems clear. We are flirting with the very things that bring your judgment and opposition. But yet, there is a remnant in this country who has access to your throne of grace. Lord, would you stir and provoke us this morning to make good use of that access and make a difference in praying. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we take a five-minute break?